We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. So one of the things that we talk about when we are working through someone learning how to preach a sermon is, one of the things I talk about at least is, find the main point. Just like if you could boil this down into one sentence, what is the whole main idea of what this text is right now? And the, the question is like, what's the main idea that the original author was trying to say to the original audience? But then also, what is the spirit trying to say now through that to us today? What is the main idea? Boil it down to one sentence, make it simple, make it clear, and then go from there. And so good news, we have been told exactly what the main idea is, right? Remember verses one and two. Now the main point of what is being said is this. And so we have it right here. We've just been given the main idea. So we're good. If the band could come back up, we can all be on our way, right? So what what is the main idea? The main idea is we have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. So just go out into the world with that and tell your neighbors, hey, we have a high priest who sat down in the sanctuary on our behalf, right? Go, Go out and tell your coworkers. Go and tell your friends and your family members. That's it. How's that gonna go over? They're probably gonna look at you like, what are you talking about, right? Like, what in the world does that even mean? I'm, I'm dealing with all kinds of stuff in my life and that seems to have nothing to do with it. What are you talking about? Now, here's the reality is even for the original audience, the author of Hebrews had to break that down for them too. Even though they knew what a high priest was, even though they knew the context and the culture really well. And so yet he was coming to them and saying, hey, let let me explain what that means, right? And so we're gonna have to do the same thing, but we're gonna have to do it first by understanding what they were trying to explain about it, and then by bringing that into our day and age too. And so we have to work a little extra hard than that original audience did. So the way that this person explains what that means, what this main idea and point is and why it even matters is by bringing up two old words for them, the tabernacle and the covenant. Again, two words we don't really use in our culture and in our everyday vocabulary, right? So what is that all about? Now, the tabernacle, if you remember what the temple was for God's people, the temple was a place where sacrifices would be made, where the priests would would do the work of offering those sacrifices and also ritual cleansing for the people so that as they're mediating on behalf of the people, the people could actually come near and approach the goodness and the glory and the holiness of God. A temple was a place where God's presence would actually dwell in the center of it in what was called the Holy of Holies. And people can draw somewhat near. The tabernacle was like the temple beta version. Okay, it was the portable version of it before they were able to get into the land God promised them and actually build this temple. So the tabernacle was this big, huge tent where it was designed to be a precursor to what the temple would be. So why does the author say tabernacle instead of temple? Because they're kind of the same thing, right? Why tabernacle? It was, that was a temporary version of what they now saw before them, actually. And I think the reason why, the only reason why, 
is because he's trying to bring their memories back to a certain specific time when this covenant was made between God and his people. The tabernacle brings them immediately back to moments like in Exodus 19. It brings them back to the days of Moses leading by God's power, the Israelites out of Egypt and bringing them into the wilderness first and to this mountain where God would actually come and speak audibly to his people and make a covenant with them. And so let's, let's trace our steps back to that covenant. But first, what in the world is a covenant, right? Who knows what a covenant is? Go ahead and take a stab at it. Jonas? Yeah, it's a promise, right? That's the simplest way to say it. It is the deepest form of promise between two people. Like the, the most sincere, deepest promise that you can make where it's like, this is going to happen. This, this better happen or else, right? Like there's, there's, a, there's a deep commitment to that promise that's being made. So one of the examples we have of this is marriage, right? When my wife and I got married 19 plus years ago, which is really crazy to say out loud because it feels like it's only been a day, a really fantastic, the best day of my life kind of day. Like such a good day. But when we made a, a, that vows to each other in our ceremony, when we made promises to each other, we were entering into a covenant, weren't we? We were entering into a kind of agreement that was joining our lives together. So it's not just like when I tell my kids, like, no, 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 we'll, we'll go somewhere after, after like your race today. We'll get some ice cream, I promise. You know, like that's, that's a promise. But it's deeper than that. It brings your lives together. It entwines you, right? Now, we've all experienced promises being made. And I could, I'm willing to bet all of us in here have also experienced promises being broken, right? And I'm just going to go even further and say I'm willing to bet we all have been part of breaking promises to other people. Have we not? Some of you are laughing way too hard at that. Like that triggered something, didn't it? We all have those experiences, but, but a marriage is a good picture of that deepest promise. And I have entered into that promise and covenant with a person now for 19 years, but I also grew up with a whole different experience where I witnessed my parents break that covenant promise with one another. And it has so many ripple effects. Not only did it tear their lives apart from one another, but it also tore at the fabric of our lives as kids. And then even today, my kids still being affected by the breaking of that covenant promise. Now, when God comes to his people, he actually refers it to being like a marriage when he makes this covenant promise. And what he's saying is our, our experience and our realities our relationship is so intertwined now that if we were to have that torn away from each other, it would cause so much damage. It would cause so much destruction. And so I want us to hear exactly how God says that. Let's go to, what's our first verse up there, Huntington? By the way, Huntington's doing our slides for us today. Give Huntington a hand. Good job, good job. I'll just read it from here. So in Exodus 19, right, God had freed his people 
And now they're out in the wilderness before they get to the promised land. But God's like, hey, pause, time out. Let's talk about what just happened real quick. And so he he calls Moses up to this mountaintop place. And so in Exodus 19, verses 3 and 4, Moses went up to the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. And so God says this, This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, you can go forward. (laughs) Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you were to say to the Israelites. We keep going. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Then, you can go again. (laughs) That's it? Oh, man, that's my bad right there. Hey, you can kind of see it right here in in the gray. Then all the people responded together. We will do all that the Lord has spoken. So that's in a marriage when you say, I do, right? I want us to see a couple things here. One, God comes to them and he doesn't start with, here's what I need you guys to do. Here's your part of this covenant. He's already started the covenant. He comes to them and says, hey, now that you have seen what I've done by bringing you out of slavery into freedom, Now that you've experienced me rescuing you from your enemies and giving you a new hope and a new future, I have borne you out on eagle's wings, he says. Like just, I don't know what that means. It's really poetic language, but picture like the flight of an eagle. Like that's freedom, right? Like when I first got my keys and my driver's license and I got to go drive, I was like, man, one, I was deathly afraid. <laughs> but once that kind of subsided, I was like, this is amazing because I can leave my house now. <laughs> I can go wherever I want to go now, and I have freedom. And now driving is terrible. I hate it. Traffic sucks. But there was a point where it was like getting on the open road was freedom, right? And like that's this poetic language that God's trying to invoke here. It's like imagine being able to just soar now openly. You were caged, and now your wings have spread. Now that I've done all that for you, God says, he's already started this covenantal relationship. He's already done his part even. And if he did no more after that, he could still ask them to do their part next. If he did nothing else after that, he could say, I'm the God who rescued you out of slavery. Now you hold up your end. Here are the laws. Here are the ways to live. And these are good ways to live, by the way. If you live this way, you will experience freedom. It's not another form of slavery. It actually will give you the best life possible. I remember one time one of my brothers said to me, speaking of being married for 19 years, none of them were married at the time. And he was like, man, I just don't know how you can be married to the same woman for the rest of your life. That you can only ever be in that relationship with one person for the rest of your life. And I was like, man, oh, he's, this is what he said. He goes, it must be so hard. And I was like, you know, there's days when it's hard. Not many. There's some days when it's hard. But I was like, dude, it's gotta be so much harder trying to figure out when you can have access to your own child 
because you're sharing custody with another woman. And then you have another child with another woman. And that gets so complicated and convoluted to have those kids together at the same time. And he was like, yeah, you're right. (laughs) You're right. That makes a lot of sense. And I was like, mic drop, fool. Because listen, God's ways, sometimes they can feel like, oh man, I'm bound to this thing, but they actually will produce freedom for you. They actually will give you the best life possible. And so God gives them these laws that he says, I want you to follow these things so that you can experience being truly free as a people, so that you can experience life in the way I intended it to be for humans. And so God gives them that after rescuing them from slavery. And he doesn't stop there. It's like he, he sandwiches what they're to do with two amazing things he's done for them. So he saves them from slavery. He gives them freedom. He calls them now. This is the best way to live in that freedom. And then he says, and now what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to bring you into a land and it's going to be flowing with all the resources you need. And I will be with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. And so the people hear this at the bottom of the mountain. They're like, okay, cool. We will do all the things. Yeah, we'll do it, God. No problem. Moses comes down. He's like, this is what God said. And they're like, yeah, yeah, easy. No problem. How well do they do at it? No, they immediately, immediately rebel against God and the things that he'd asked them to do. They, as soon as Moses comes down from the mountain with those commands, this is how you are to live, they have already broken the first one, which is simply to worship God above all other gods. Now, why does God want to do that? Why does he ask that from his people? What do you think, Connor? Yeah, yeah. God just rescued you from slavery. Why would you turn to another God that doesn't have that power, right? Absolutely. Also, remember, we're we're tying in the covenant and the tabernacle together. God sandwiches what he's done for you and saving you, but then also, and I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be with you. The whole point of this covenant is to intertwine God and Israel together. God wants to be with them. That's the point of the covenant. That's the point of a marriage, right? And so absolutely, 100%, why would you go and and worship some other God that can't free you? In fact, you're just going to go back into an old form of slavery again. But also, this deeply breaks God's heart because he wants to simply be with his people. And so immediately, Moses comes down, he sees they've already decided to go be with another God. They're having an affair on God. Yeah, dang, is right. That would break God's heart, and it did. So this covenant now has a problem, doesn't it? Just like I experienced growing up, this covenant relationship has now been ripped apart, and there's damage and destruction that happens from that. Huntington, can you go to our next scripture for me. And so what the author of Hebrews does is this. He says, hey, God knew that there's a problem with this old covenant. He knew that the people didn't uphold their end of it. So God made a promise that he would come and make a new covenant with them. 
he would renew this relationship with them. And what he does in Hebrews 8 is he quotes from Jeremiah 31. Now, we read all of, it's almost word for word verbatim, right? And so if you go to Hebrews 8 and you read verses 8 all the way through 12, this is what's coming straight from Jeremiah 31. But I want to read one verse in particular from Jeremiah 31 out of that because it was translated slightly differently. And so in Hebrews 8, when he says that, uh, he says, I'll make a new covenant with them, not like the covenant with the ancestors. And he says, I showed in verse nine, no concern for them because they did not continue in my covenant. In Jeremiah 31, verse 32, it actually gets a little more intimate than that. It gets a little more deep than that. When God says this, he says, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke even though I am their master. Now, that word, master, some of your translations might say something else. They might say husband. And that word could be translated either way, actually, in the Hebrew. God is saying that they disobeyed and they broke the covenant and they walked away from me, even though I was their husband. Even though I made this deep covenantal relationship and promise with them. And I upheld my end of it. They were unfaithful to me. They broke away. That's tragic. And so God says though, I'm gonna make a new covenant. Now, how amazing is it for God to be heartbroken and distraught and to have people walk away from him and be unfaithful and yet still say, I'm not done with you yet. I still have promises that I'm going to keep. Even though you didn't keep yours, I'm still working on your behalf. And so if we keep going in Jeremiah 31, verses 35 and 36, this is what the Lord says. He says, after he, he says all the things quoted in Hebrews 8 that we read already, it goes on to say, this is what the Lord says, the one who gives the sun for light by day, the fixed order of moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea and makes its waves roar. The Lord of armies is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, this is the Lord's declaration, only then will Israel's descendants cease to be a nation forever. Did you catch that? He's reminding us who this God is, how great and powerful he is, that he's the one who put the sun and the stars and the moon and the sky, who gave order and light and night and all the things necessary for life to thrive on earth. He's the one who made all that happen. And he's saying, listen, the only way that this promise I made that my end of the deal is going to stop, the only way that will get broken is when you see the day when the sun and the moon and the stars and the sea and all that gives away. What God's saying there is you can count on this promise. Every time that you get up and you look outside and you see the sunrise, every time that you go out at night and you see the moon and the stars in the sky, and you know the God who put them there, you can also count on that same God with that power says, I am faithful to you. I'm faithful to you. This is a promise and a guarantee that even though 
we broke our end of the deal. God has not given up on humanity and he will come through with his promises. And so God continues to pursue his people. And listen, this covenantal promise, it was made for the people of Israel, but why did God call the people of Israel? He said, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing, right? And all the nations will be blessed through you. And so what ends up happening is through Jesus, the only faithful Israelite who ever lived, he actually makes a way for all other nations, thank God, because that's you and me and everybody in this room, for the Gentiles to have a way to actually be adopted into this covenant that we get to now enter into this promise that was given generations ago to the nation of Israel. God now has made a way that we get grafted into that. Now, here's the thing. The author of Hebrews is talking to a group of people who are being tempted to go backward, right? They're being tempted to say, maybe we don't need this new guy, Jesus, Maybe like all this stuff about Jesus who's come and, and he's the Messiah and now he's the way into this covenant relationship with God of God being with us. Man, we've done this other thing for centuries. Our ancestors, my, my grandparents and my parents and, and me, I've lived my whole life this way. They're tempted to go back. Now this is kind of like what the Israelites faced, isn't it? In Exodus, I think 16 it is, if that's our next passage up there, Huntington. Was I right? Exodus 16, nice. In Exodus 16, before they get to the mountain, while they're on their way, they're grumbling and complaining because they're hungry. And this is what happens in verse three. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. What a re-narration there, right? They were slaves. They were forced into hard labor and they were given less and less supplies the more they complained about how hard the work was. And they were forced to work more and more hours. And they're saying, man, do you remember those days back in Egypt when we were slaves and we just had pots of meat sitting around everywhere and all the bread we could ever want, like Olive Garden? They're like, do you remember that? And our our memories get so hazy and fuzzy, don't they, as we look back. Instead, they start complaining to Moses and Aaron, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. This is the God who made bread fall from the sky that they're complaining about. So what they want to do is they want to return back to their slavery when God had just set them free. And what the author of Hebrews is saying to these people here is the same thing. Don't go back to your old form of slavery. God has set you free in Jesus. Now listen, we don't have that same temptation because we don't live in this day, right? We don't have that same context and culture. We didn't grow up with the Torah and the ways of the Israelites. And so we don't have that same temptation to go backward, do we? But I think in our culture, what our culture tries to do is convince us that we can actually go forward instead. That there's something new and better, that we have enlightenment now that we have grown beyond the old traditional ways, right? And if we aren't careful, we can get caught up in believing that the word of God or that even Jesus himself is some old way of being truly human and finding our way to God. And we're trying to go forward. But listen, here's the thing. It's a trick. 
And it's actually, though it's deceiving you to think you're moving on to something better, it's actually returning back to a form of slavery again. Will you show that next passage for me, Huntington? And this is what Paul said in Galatians 4. He's talking to a group of people, trying to convince them, Jesus has set you free. Hold on to that. Don't return to something else. And listen, this is what he says. In the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. Like Connor said earlier, why would you go and worship this other thing when it doesn't have the power to set you free, right? But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, do you believe that this morning, that you are known by God? How good is that? How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? Paul wasn't talking to a group of people returning to traditional Jewish ways there. He's talking to people going back to their sin and worshiping after false idols. And that is the deception that our culture is trying to bring us into. You can move forward into a new way of enlightenment, but listen, those things are not gods that have the power to free you. Those things are a new form of slavery. It's returning back to what we think is just pots of meat sitting around, but really it's shackles and chains. It's the same thing I I said to my brother about like, yeah, you think that's freedom, being able to just be with whoever you want, but really what that's done is create your life to be so much more difficult than it needs to be. We think that there's something else outside of what God has for us that would actually make us happy or bring us freedom. And it's a trick. It's returning into old ways of slavery and bondage with weak, worthless gods that have no power to rescue us from it. Thank God he has not given up on humanity. Thank God that when we turn away from him and we break the covenant, that he comes in the form of a human and he fulfills our end for us. God has already done his part and he goes even further, rescued them out of slavery even further. Here's a land full of everything you could ever ask for. Even further, I will be there with you. I will be your God and I will bless you. Even further, you haven't done your part. All of humanity has broken the covenant. I will be a human and I will do it on your behalf. And so God comes in the form of a man and Jesus lives perfectly within that covenant, keeping faithful to the master. And then Jesus makes a way for us to enter into that as well. This is the main point that you can go and you can tell your friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers about that everything that they are seeking, everything that they think will bring them freedom and life and joy and power, all of that is actually found in Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying when he says, this is the main point. We have this kind of priest a priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, one who has entered into the tabernacle on our behalf. He has made a way now for us too to enter in. That's why when Jesus hung on that cross and he died at his last breath, the curtain in the temple that was separating people from the holy of holies where the presence of God is tore in half and fell to the ground. Because now there is no separation. 
that if we would actually trust in Jesus, he has fulfilled the covenant on our behalf. This is the new covenant. We're about to go to the table like we do every week. And I want us to hear these words as we do it. I think, I can't remember if I put this on the screen. I did not. Thank you, Huntington, for that one, though. Uh, I should have added this on the screen from 1 Corinthians. So I'm going to turn there right now. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's reminding people about what Jesus did and how he made a way for that new covenant. So this is what he says in chapter 11, verse 23. He says, I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus's sacrifice as our priest has made the new covenant full and complete. And so when we take that cup, we remember we get to enter into this new covenant. God being with us, us being free and made whole only because of the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf. And so we're gonna to go to the table now. And if you believe that, or if you want to believe that, would you say this with me? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Come to the table as you're ready.